You'll open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. I want you to first open to Daniel chapter 9. I want to read just a few verses from there. In Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. And then we'll flip to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will be put He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now turn to Daniel chapter 12. I'm first of all just going to read verses 1 through 4. We'll pray, we'll get into this, and then we'll close out also with some thoughts from verses 5 through the end of the chapter. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the giving of your word, and now we ask your spirit to accompany the truth and preaching of your word. Will you use the preacher, bringing clarity through him to the people, giving proper identification of some of the matters in these verses? Or we know that not all will be fully exhausted in these things, and yet there can be understanding. We ask, Lord, that you would give us an understanding of the big picture of what you have revealed to Daniel and what you have revealed in the rest of your word. May you teach us even more of your grace and your power. 
Deal with our souls now according to these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Daniel, by supernatural vision, has seen the future of four kingdoms. That's really been discussed from chapter 7 up until now. One kingdom he lived through, another kingdom on the rise during his last days, and two more in the coming future. The first kingdom that he lived through was that of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece is that which was far future, and Rome. He also witnessed by vision types of antichrists in Nebuchadnezzar, the Seleucid rulers, especially Antiochus IV, and also the coming of the Roman Empire and it as an antichrist in its context. And we saw that in Daniel 11, verses 36 to 45 last week. And there was some context given in these first four verses of Daniel uh, chapter 12 as to what was to come. And as we unfold some of these identifications, we will need to recognize the importance of this future glimpse of Antichrist. Daniel has been given the glimpse of this big picture information of the future Antichrist. And that rolls into Daniel 12. There are three things from the last part of Daniel 11 that we can look at in the future context of the Antichrist. Number one, the Antichrist will seemingly do as he pleases, 1136. Number two, the Antichrist will seemingly set himself up as God. That's also verse 36 of chapter 11. Number three, the Antichrist will seemingly defeat his greatest enemies, verse 39 of chapter 11, and then also in chapter 12, verse 1 in part B. So this Antichrist seemingly does as he pleases, sets himself up as God, and he seemingly defeats his greatest enemies. Daniel 12, 1, letter part B says, And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now in one sense, this is fulfilled in that near future context of what Rome will become and what it will do to the Jewish nation and the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And yet there's also a far-reaching future context to this idea in 12.1 that there is a coming antichrist. There is one who will bring a great time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, thankfully, the Lord does not leave Daniel without any hope and encouragement. Although he speaks of a terrible time of distress, 12.1, he also speaks of the final resurrection to everlasting life and the final eternal condemnation. And that's in 12.2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Here is a far future sense of what the time of the Antichrist will bring about in that far future sense. And what will follow is this general resurrection. And this is to be a comfort to Daniel. 
It's a comfort to him in a broad context at this point, and we'll see as we move into chapter 12, it will also be a comfort to him personally by the end of the chapter itself. Well, how do we recognize this hope fulfilled? How do we recognize the hope of this general resurrection that God will deal with Antichrist? How do we recognize that in hope fulfilled from these passages and in the context of further teaching in Scripture? Well, number one, Daniel has already been shown the near coming work of the Messiah. Daniel has already been shown the near coming work of the Messiah. Remember, when we're at this point of the vision, even in his last few verses, this is not just something all of a sudden you can pull these four verses out and go, bam, here it is. Sorry. You can't do that. I got her. I scared her to death. So you can't do that. You can't pull it out of its context that way. You can't just jerk it out. You have to see it in the fullness of its context. You have to see it lined up. Chapter to chapter to chapter to chapter. You have to see its connection. There's a whole building vision at this point. The problem we have in the modern church today is they want to take these excerpts, one verse, two or three verses, they want to pull them out and they want to section them out and they want to build whole doctrines off of one verse or two verse and then put it in this place or that place. You have to look at chapter 7 through 12 and see the picture of the whole. It saddens me when I see all these charts, pages upon pages upon pages of charts that people devote to the book of Daniel as if somehow if you can't figure out their chart that's 8 feet long and 4 feet wide, then you don't understand biblical prophecy. There's got to be something that we can understand easier than that. And the context of this is fulfilled already in the sense of what we've seen in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. For what purpose were they decreed? To finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. There is a mouthful in that one verse which cannot be taken out of context in the whole of this vision or in the whole of the context of Scripture and especially Actually, the New Testament. The 70 weeks have been decreed are the sense of what is coming in its whole nature that the vision unfolds in the four kingdoms. What you've seen in the unfolding of these visions of the four kingdoms, that's the whole of the 70 weeks in its near future context. What you see in the sense of this section of Daniel 9 when it talks about a time for the transgression to be finished, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for for iniquity. This is the recognition of the coming of Christ. 
in the time of the Roman Empire, he comes. And in the time of that great Antichrist of the Roman Empire, he makes an end to sin. He makes atonement for iniquity. He brings in everlasting righteousness. First of all, he's born of the Virgin Mary. He lives as one of us in human flesh. And he lives the law of God perfectly and rightly. But not only does he live it rightly, he makes atonement for iniquity. He does it. And you say, well, how does this connect? Well, think about it this way. The great distress that's promised in 12.1 is still a coming factor and the general resurrection in 12.2, which is promised, is still a coming factor. So what is the Lord Jesus going to do? Well, his first advent is necessary. His first coming is necessary because he completes the atonement. And his second advent is necessary because he will resurrect the people. Some to everlasting life and some to condemnation. Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 and this whole of this vision together is giving us a sense of the importance of the unfolding of the great distress of these next four and a half to five centuries that comes through these four kingdoms, the importance of the first coming of Christ and what he will do, although it's given in small portion to him, it's unfolded and then they're saying there's even further distress that comes. Even though Christ is resurrected, even though he ascends and he is reigning, he is coronated as the king of all space, time, and history, of all of creation, that coronation in and of itself gives us an understanding of what still is to come. The moment Christ ascended, all problems didn't leave. Matter of fact, Mark 13 is a promise to the early church that they will go through distress. And we see the unfolding of that in the early church in the book of Acts. Do they show up at the day of Pentecost? Everything was great. Then they begin to preach and everybody loved them. Then after they preached the more, everybody loved them more. Everybody just throwing food and houses and everything at them and we love you and we're going to set you up as the great people. No, they go through one distress after another. They're persecuted, they're imprisoned, some of them put to death. Well, what hope do they have? Well, it's the hope of 12.2 and 12.3. There's still a, a coming resurrection, a general resurrection. So Daniel is given in this vision a, an allusion to that. It's not given in all of its grand detail, but the rest of Scripture begins to fill that out for us. Even in Paul's writing, he gives us a sense of this understanding when he wrote to the Colossian church in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt 
Kind of sounds like 924, doesn't it? He goes on. He says, not only having canceled out the, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. The law of God against us is hostile to us. But Christ lived the law perfectly and applied that righteousness to believers. Their sin was put onto him. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God has triumphed over the ruling authorities through Christ. So there is this near future sense to Daniel, that promise made to him, that these ruling kingdoms, they think they're going to have their way. But as they're doing their will and their way, and they're seemingly, Rome is doing as it pleases, Rome is being defeated in its ideology. Humanism, secular humanism is being defeated in its ideology. Pluralism is being defeated. How? Because the Christ comes the first time. And even upon his death and crucifixion and his resurrection, that was the stamp on the death of these ideologies and these antichrists. It's like a person walking around with a disease that is internally killing them and they have no idea of it. They think they're in control and in charge. They think they're doing what they want to. And then all of a sudden, it's over. Before they even knew it. Paul is giving us an identification of something that Daniel was only told of in far future language. It's just a brief glimpse. It's a brief glimpse. Well, as he gets that brief glimpse, all of a sudden, in verse 4, it says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. All of a sudden, there's a closing of this, this vision. Everything that's unfolded about the different beasts and the terror of the beasts and all these little horns and, as, as a pastor friend of mine says, all the goats and horns, all this stuff that's unfolding, all this imagery that's given to us and we've tried to try to work through it and piece it together. Now all of a sudden we come to this place and... But as for you, Daniel... Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Daniel is told after the revelation of the general resurrection in 12, 2-3 to close up the book and seal it. It is not time for more to be known. Now, you have to recognize in Middle Eastern literature, this is also a sense of saying, Seal it up, it's done, and now it can be given rightly. 
Everything that needs to be said has been said to this point. And it's been said with all the information you need at this point. But it does need to go out. This is often what happened with a sealed letter from a king. Once the letter was sealed, it's saying it's finished, but then they would take the letter out to whoever it was meant to be given to. And in this case, these visions will be for the people of Israel. There's still those that are going to go from the exile back to Jerusalem. They're going to go through all the struggles of rebuilding the temple. They're going to have all the difficulty, even though God promises them they can go back. There's still going to be difficulty because he promised there would be difficulty. And even after they get back and get everything set up, there's still hundreds of years of difficulty. And all that information was given to them. But what was also given to them is the hope and the encouragement that this will be dealt with in the coming Messiah. He is told in verse 4, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. I don't want to take long on this, but I just want to say a couple of things. And I think one writer sums it up best um, and, and very succinctly. These words, speaking of back and forth or to and fro, some of your versions may say, these words do not refer to advances in transportation or increased human technology over time. Now, why would that writer write of that? If you've been around premillennial dispensationalism for very long, as I was growing up for many, many years, you'll know that there are quite a few dispensational interpreters who take these words in some sense about the ability of the growth of technology or the idea that there'll be advances in transportation that people can go back and forth. It has nothing to do with that. These words indicate that as the vision is sealed and as redemptive history continues to unfold, true knowledge can be found only in the revelation of God speaking of his word. This writer says, sadly, the pagans will look for knowledge where it cannot be found. This is the idea. There will be true knowledge found, but it's only found in the word of God. And many will go back and forth between their understanding of this knowledge. But the people of God, and Daniel's giving this primarily to the people of Israel at the time, they are to know that it's God's word alone that will help them through the difficulty. Well, after this is sealed up, it's put to bed, it's put to rest. In verse 5, it says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. So we see these two others standing, one on one side and one on the other. Verse 6, And one said to the man dressed in linen, this is the one who had been given the vision, who was above the waters of the river, so two men, one on one side of the river, one on the side of the other in the vision, then one over the river. And one of the men dressed says, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? So here's a question coming from one of these two. And in verse 7 he says, 
I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven. It's a sense he sees in the vision this man raise his right hand and left as if here I'm swearing, I'm promising by these two hands. That's a sign of, of oath. I'm swearing and promising. You, you may have been to a church where at the end, at the benediction, you'll have someone read a benediction and they raise their hands and they give the benediction to the congregation. The benediction is the swearing by oath that we leave in the grace of Christ. Okay? So here he, he envisions that and sees that and he says, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people all these events will be completed this is simply a prophecy of all that will run up until the destruction of Jerusalem this is an understanding that it will go on for these times in a near future sense One writer says this is the same period mentioned in Revelation 11, 1 through 3, and 12, 14. Now, here's the far future sense. The far future sense is this is a similar thing that the church will enter into. They will have their own wilderness phase. The struggles of the church will be evident after the time of Christ's ascension because all is not made perfect. We see the struggles that the church goes through. It's evident in the letters that are written. It's evident in the book of Acts that all is not perfect. The church is growing, but it has growing pains. It's struggling to learn how to function. It's setting up leadership in the church, struggling to do that. There's those who come among the church who are false teachers. These are great warnings in Peter's letters. It's also a letter there in Jude, which Scott will be uh, alluding to and teaching on in coming weeks. The church has the tares in it, as Jesus talked about. These struggles and these difficulties are there. Even so much so, as one writer says, the Apostle Peter describes Christians as exiles. And he does this in both of his epistles. Now, some people say, well, no, 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 but he's, he's writing his letters to Hebrew believers. Yeah, but there's still imagery there because Peter's no longer identifying as, as just a Jew. He's identifying as a follower of Christ and an apostle. And he's writing to believers in the church or in churches. So there's a sense in which he's saying there's still a time of struggle that goes on even after the ascension of Christ. There's exile among us. And we know that's true because after the ascension, there's still things that go on that are great struggle for the people of God, all the way up until the destruction of Jerusalem itself. Do we not see this also in church history as it unfolds? There's great persecutions for early Christians. Even after the time of Constantine, there continues to be great trial and struggle for Christians. The Roman Catholic Inquisition was not only a trial for Judaism, but it was a trial not only for Muslims and Judaism, but it was a trial at times for Christians themselves. 
This is why the Reformation was so necessary. This is just far future language to help us understand that even after the first advent and the death, perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that what will take place in his ascension is not a complete perfection at that moment. There's still trouble ahead. Now, what's amazing about that is, is that with that trouble ahead, there's also great grace. There's a revelation of the great grace of God in a way as the gospel goes out to the nations. As Jesus talked about in Mark 13, which Robin read this morning. And the gospel is going out to the nations, isn't it? And it has been for centuries. Many people say that the reformers and Calvinists and their such have not been serious about taking the gospel of the nations. Well, go, go read how important church planting and global missions was to Calvin. They went out by ships, even to places like South America in the sense of uh, the early part of exploration in the late 1500s. Calvin was very serious about global missions and the gospel going out to the nations. And it continues to happen in this day. We've been very blessed by the gospel in our nation. It's had a great effect on us. Sadly, we're walking away from it, but it's had a great effect on this nation. And it will continue to have an effect as the nearing of Christ returns, his second coming. Verse 8. Daniel says, As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Now, Daniel had seen this vision. He had heard this conversation between the two on each side of the river and the one that was over the river, and he couldn't quite comprehend all of it. It's, we shouldn't be shocked by that because he's already admitted earlier that these visions were terrifying to him, and he was trying to understand. That's why after 7 and 8, 9 and 10 and 11 unfold the way they do. Because those are further enumerations of what was taught in 7 and 8 in the visions. Remember, all these things are connected. You can't just pull them out, just one little verse here or a section of verses there. You've got to see the whole visions in connection and the importance of the coming four kingdoms in, in near future sense and then what will happen in a far future sense is, is in apocalyptic literature. It's not meant to give us every single detail. But it is meant to tell us of... Great distress and great hope and great hope. And so Daniel, once again, is struggling a little bit, and he says, I don't understand. What what, what will be the outcome of these events? Verse 9, he said to him, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. In the book of Revelation, who's... What's one of the, the things that we see in the opening of, of the apocalyptic section of the book of Revelation? They're searching for one who can undo the scroll, right? And who's the only one that can undo the scroll? The Lord Jesus himself. He's saying, Daniel, these visions are sealed up now. The one who can undo these scrolls and the one who understands it all, he has not come yet. And don't worry yourself with any of it further 
because it's not meant for you at this time to have this understanding. And then he gives this word in verse 10 through verse 13, uh, excuse me, through verse 12. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days? Well, these verses are difficult for many, and it's understandable why. It's giving us this far future sense of the greater distress. There'll be distress and encouragement. This is also a summing up of the ideas of the 70 weeks in its proclamation. And it's even a sense of the unfolding of what will happen and what Christ brings about. We know from Scripture that Christ is the supreme ruler of all things. We know that. But do we understand him as eternal supreme ruler? See, before Christ comes, in the time that this vision is given, where is Christ? Who is he? Is he not supreme ruler? No, he's always been supreme ruler. This is the difference in Revelation. There's never a time when Christ was not supreme ruler. There was a time when that revelation of him as supreme ruler did not exist in its full context. And to Daniel at this point, he knows of Messiah. He sees and hears of this promise from Daniel 9, 24 to 27. But it hasn't come to its fullest fruition. When Christ comes... What happens among the Jews? When he's there, the Jews are supposedly looking for Messiah, right? Does every single Jew, when Christ comes on the scene in his ministry, does every single Jew all over the regions there that Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing his miracles, performing them, uh, do, do they all go out to him and all of them bow down before him as Messiah? No. But that's the time that he's revealed as such. And he's revealed as such in his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. And his ascension is that coronation of who he is in time. But he's always been that because he's one with the Father. He's one with God the Father and God the Spirit. He's always been that. This is merely looking at Christ in this revelation and recognizing. Don't be scared of the purgings. Don't be scared of the persecution. Don't be scared of all the wickedness around you because that was coming for them. That's also enumerated for us. In the book of Revelation, in chapters 11 and 12, when the church is in this wilderness phase of its own, and Peter even has alluded to them as exiles in his epistles, 
The promise is that the Messiah will come. There's a promise here in verse 11 that the sacrifice will be abolished, and that's the abomination of desolation. That's what happens in A.D. 70. Ever since A.D. 70, Judaism as a religion has completely changed. There is no Jew today that in any shape, form, or fashion worships as a Jew did before A.D. 70. That prophecy is fulfilled. It's done. And it's not coming back. That's the whole point of the letter of the Hebrews is that the, there's no need for that sacrificial system anymore. If anybody wants to set that up, you're taking away from what Christ did and you're going backwards. These 1,335 days are the context of the far future church and the difficulties they will see. But he doesn't even linger there. Notice how short this section is. In verse 13 he says, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest. There's a personal comfort he gives to Daniel. You will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, he has to be talking about a far future sense of the end of the age, doesn't he? Because if he's only talking about the near future sense, then that means that Daniel was risen to life at the time of Christ. And the scripture never teaches that Daniel was resurrected in the first century, right? A.D. So here is a far future comfort for Daniel where the general resurrection was already mentioned in these previous verses in, in chapter 12 and 2 and 3. Now a far future comfort is given to him even personally. You will enter rest. There's coming a time where you will die. No worries. And then you'll rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel will be numbered among those in the Lamb's book of life. In these words, we are given an all-final hope. An all-final hope that rests in Christ. Daniel is promised a near-future rest and a far-future rest. And so are all those who die in Christ. Thessalonians promises that resurrection. It's promised in Romans and in Corinthians it's also promised in Revelation. What hope do we have that in the church age that we are in now, that Christ is the ruling, reigning, supreme king of all things, even though the world looks like it's in chaos? Turn with me and we'll end here. Revelation chapter 20.
Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Satan has not yet been completely bound. If he was completely and finally bound, he would be in eternal condemnation. That does not mean that he has free reign in any way, for he still works among his ways and his demons, and he does that which he thinks is right, and yet he is deceived because he's thinking he's doing what, he's, what he wants to, and yet he's never really having his way. And in verse 10, it says there's a coming day. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne. And this is, here's the Lord Jesus coming in his, his, his second coming. And at his second coming, there's a final defeat of Satan. It's done and over. Satan's walking around as if he's in control. He's a dead man who doesn't know it. He's not a man, being. And all those who follow him have this same disease. And they will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead, or up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea or any terror. There, there's no more wickedness. There's no more chaos around the whole and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Who is among men? The tabernacle of God? We're able to worship at the Lord Jesus' feet. What Daniel could only see in just these little bitty glimpses and it bracketed off a great part of the Old Testament history. When you come to Revelation, you see this other bracket. There was the age of the Old Covenant and the present age. Two ages. And both ages, both ages are fully and finally summed up by the person and work of Christ. One in his first advent and one in his second. And in the fullness of Christ's coming, all things will be reconciled. It's a great glimpse of promise, hope, near future and far future. No matter what may happen, may we take the words that were given to Daniel 
and say, you know what? There are things that I will not understand, but there is one thing I can understand. God will send his Messiah and he will reconcile all things to himself. And there is a future hope that we will be raised to life in Christ to a place where there's no more wickedness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so merciful, so gracious, so kind. That even what is past history and not even well understood history to many of us, you've summed it up in your word. You ordained these kingdoms and these kings and rulers of a bygone age. And you ultimately use them for your purpose to bring about the actual work and person of your son Christ onto this very earth. That horrible empire of Rome and all of its secular empire and all of its secular humanism, Lord, you brought them about. That Christ could come And the whole of the gospel could go forth. Lord, will you give us a rest in you today? That you are working even among the nations of this globe in 2023. And that all future years that you allow to take place is under your sovereign control through the reigning kingship revealed according to the person and work of your son, Christ Jesus. May we put all our hope in him according to the truth of your word and nothing else. Even when it seems like things are falling apart, give us a trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.